in connection with her book, and uh, the facilities are much better downstairs in the Santa Barbara room. So make <clears throat> that change, and I recommend your attendance at that event. Uh, for the uh, 8,000 people who were in the screenwriting workshop yesterday morning, uh, for Stephen Fisher, uh, I just wanted to uh, tell you that he called today, which is a new precedent for guests at the Writers' Conference. He called to say that he had had a great time. And mind you, this was a free appearance. Uh, he had a great time. He thanked me for asking him. It was a wonderful morning. and. Could he please come back next year? Uh, to all students who are interested in our various competitions, the deadline is 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. The box in the lobby, which is marked contest entries, will be picked up at 9 o'clock under armed guard. And taken to a secret cave where the judges will be meeting all day and will emerge with their verdicts on Friday morning. Uh, as you know, that will include the worst opening sentence. Uh, it will include the three categories of writing to the title escape, fiction, nonfiction, or poetry in a thousand words. And it will also include uh, the recommendations of various workshop leaders are giving to us for work done in their workshops. And then we have the two extra competitions, the Santa Barbara Magazine Award for the best material that they select written at the conference. Uh, it's not our selection. And then the Phoenix Impressions Award for the best fiction submission by a student uh, made at this time. Uh, they will accept up to 20 pages of fiction from anyone uh, who wants to submit. Uh, that judging will be tomorrow, too. Uh, the first award that we will make uh, is tonight. And unfortunately, I have to do it in absentia because uh, the recipient is not present. Uh, this was a special award that has been given to Duane Unkefer, who is not here. Is, Duane is not here, is he? No, I think not. But uh, this is the Sue Grafton Award. And I must tell you that it's a, a very unique award because in Sue's book, books, her heroine, Kinsey Milhone, has weaknesses for peanut butter and for pickles, uh, alone or together. And um, the manufacturer of the brand of pickles that uh, uh, Sue recommends in her book, sent her a dozen jars uh, of pickles. And this, this is the Vlasic bread and butter, original bread and butter chips. And it is autographed for Dwayne Unkefer, taking the sweet with the sour, and signed by Sue Grafton. And Sue, uh, thank you so much. Will you take a bow? I, I personally will deliver half of this jar to Duane. <laughs> I would also like you to uh, say hello once again to Fanny Flagg, who's sitting in the back of the room incognito. Fanny. And also say hello to Ann Francis, who is a regular evening customer here. And now, from failing hands, I throw the torch to Barnaby. You're on. You know, every one of us, we, we, we say, oh, we don't care about getting published. It's, uh, uh, it's for the love of writing. Uh, and as we sit there reading our own words and um, no one else sees them, but we really do want to get published, and we do want to have a bestseller, uh, no matter what we say. But as Truman Capote said, be careful what you wish for, you may get it. <laughs> uh, I, uh, 
I wish desperately to, to write a bestseller. I wrote a, a book that, uh, uh, as I said, just was published to resounding apathy. Uh, <laughs> it sold all of 5,000 of its 6,000 first run. And I wrote a second book that I knew was better, sent it to Random House, and they turned it down. And then I, I wrote Matador, which took off. And uh, after, I mean, it was turned down by Random House, and then Houghton Mifflin took it, and it took off. And uh, it was Book of the Month Club and all those things. And uh, bestseller for 54 weeks on the bestseller list. And, and I thought all my dreams had come true. Be careful what you wish for out there for your bestsellers. And here to tell us about it tonight is Robert Waller, because he's written what is, everyone seems to think is the book of the year. Uh, Francis uh, uh, told me the other day that uh, she said, this is the best book I've ever read in my life. And uh, I won't give you her last name because she's read other books too, but she said this, uh, she's going to be, I'll just give you a hint, she's going to be speaking tomorrow uh, at four o'clock, but she said this is the best book I've ever read in my life. And uh, so many other people uh, have read this book and said the same thing. The, the world seems to be divided, those who've never heard of the book and those who say, my God, have you read it? It's got it, you've got, and word of mouth has um, helped. Finally, some advertising has come out that uh, repeats the word of mouth. Uh, for example, this simple little book packs a real punch. It is eloquent, emotional, touches the heart. It's the most m moving love story I've read in a long time. I couldn't put it down until I'd finished it by Barbara Taylor Bradford. Reynolds Price says, um, a flat out old fashioned love story with all jets blazing and dual exhaust, etc., etc. But the best one, I think, was the first one I saw, which was the Publishers Weekly, and it simply said, an erotic, bittersweet tale of lingering memories and forsaken possibilities. And that's what it's about. And here to tell us how it came about is the author, Robert, Robert uh, Waller, here. <laughs> Francis who? Oh, thank you kindly. It's uh, very nice to be here for an old economist and mathematician. Uh, this is all quite unexpected. Uh, that's my training and my, my background. I, I took one literature course in 58, and it was an absolute disaster. And I vowed that I would never go near an English department again, and I have been successful. I must, uh, I must tell you that. Um, I'll get into the history of the book a, a little bit here and, um, and tell you how it came to be chat with you for a few minutes about some things, and then maybe we can just talk uh, together. Okay, I would rather do that than talk at you, I'd rather talk with you. I was uh, in Madison County, Iowa, doing some photography. I'm a serious photographer, and uh, uh, the old covered bridges down there in uh, the summer of 1990. I stopped in Des Moines, Iowa on my way home, stayed overnight, and woke up the next morning with a feeling that I get quite often, and I don't have a good word for it, but uh, the feeling is a uh, fullness in the chest or the heart or the head or something that tells me I want to do something creative. I was a musician for years, so maybe I want to write a song or whatever, or take a photograph. But I went home, and uh, my wife was away at an art show. She's a potter. I threw my bags on the floor, and I wrote for 14 days, and I produced The Bridges in Madison County, just like that. That's the way, that's true. That's absolutely true. It's the way it came. I had almost all of it done in nine days, and then I, I had the wreath. I wanted to do a little something else, so I thought up Nighthawk Cummings and put him in at the end. For those of you who've read it, uh, the little coda, at the end, uh, I had published uh, two collections of essays prior to that that appeared in the Des Moines Register. Simple little things about my cat and my wife and uh, my daughter and canoeing and going fishing and things like that. Uh, then I had written a serious book on. Uh, uh, on the future of Iowa. It was a book on economic philosophy, which almost no one has read. Uh, I think it's brilliant, but almost nobody, nobody's read it. So, uh, 
And uh, then this little book came along, and it's been quite a, a magical carpet ride, and I've been, I must say I've enjoyed every minute of it. I didn't expect to be doing this kind of thing for a blue-collared kid from a small town in Iowa. It's, uh, it's, it's been very, very interesting. So um, the title of the talk tonight, uh, which I didn't choose, is What Happens When You Write Your First Bestseller? It's also my first novel, I might add. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know who picked that title. Uh, but uh, I'll answer the question. You grin a lot. That's what you do. <laughs> and uh, the second thing you do is panic, because you know you're never going to be able to write another book uh, that people are going to like as much as they do The Bridges of Madison County. And then you get by that and get to work and, and start writing some other things. There's one other thing that also happens. You must put up with intense envy from the English department where you teach. <laughs> They all hate you, and they're not going to talk to you ever again, and they're over there writing parodies. One of them is writing parodies of my writing. They're so angry at me, you know. But that's okay. That, I already know them, and uh, they have it. As I told them once, I said, I'm sorry that you have trained in capacity, but that's the way it is. So, <laughs> incidentally, I'm writing a book about college. I just finished a book about college professors and all of that nonsense. Uh, so... Uh, you know, Never fool with a writer who has a market out there. You know? <laughs> it's really a, tremendous, a tremendously powerful thing to, to have. How does the book get to be a bestseller? This little book made it on its own. It made it because of readers, and it made it because of independent booksellers, such as uh, Tecalote here, and Elizabeth Robbins in particular at Tecalote. Uh, Warner mid-listed this book, which uh, Warner Books, which means that they were going to send it out and hope for the best. Uh, uh, I, I shouldn't, uh, I don't want to uh, to be negative about Warner Books because they've been very, very kind to me in, in every way in, in dealing with them. Uh, they sent out a lot of review copies. That was their strategy for marketing book. They sent out 3,000 uh, review copies, which is a very, very large number, to booksellers all over the country. Uh, they put a cover letter on it, and some people actually read it and started recommending it to, to people. Um, there's a store in Sarasota, Florida that sold over a thousand copies alone, one store, uh, and it's doing very, very well here in, in Santa Barbara, too, for which I'm thankful. Uh, once they got, uh, once that happened, or we were into that a little ways, and the film option sold, and the screenplay will get underway. I understand the writing of it uh, in um, October. Uh, the guy who did Rain Man is going to do the screenplay for it. Wow. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is really fun. You know, let's see what happens next. As my wife said, God, every time the phone rings, it's more fun. You know. <laughs> We were actually, with the, when the, the film option was purchased, this is true, we were able to buy our first dining room table that we ever owned. We always had a door on top of sawhorses. And the day that the, she said, what was that? And I told her, and she said, I'll be back. This is true. And, and uh, down the road came a truck after a while. We, had a, we now have a dining room table. And I won't tell you what the table's name is, but it's named after the well-known person in, uh, in Hollywood who bought the film. We christened the table after him. After that, it began selling in foreign countries, and it's now sold in eight countries uh, so far. I don't think I can list them all. Japan, Germany, uh, Sweden, France, Italy, Denmark, Great Britain, hmm, Spain, um, all these foreign language um, uh, rights. My agent handles all that. I just sit out in Cedar Falls, Iowa in the woods and, and drink coffee and think about what can I write next. Uh, after that, uh, the, the independent booksellers really got underway on it and have done a marvelous job. And as I said, the, the readers have done it. There are readers that have bought as high as 30 copies of this book. I mean, a single person. 26 is another, 21, 20. I'm, you know, I just hear these stories from, from bookstores. And that's a lot of books. And then a fellow up in, um, in Connecticut, at Greenwich, at Greenwich, Connecticut, at Just Books, who is on the board of directors of the American Booksellers Association got behind it. And he gave a speech at the ABA convention uh, last month in Anaheim. And I'm going to read you this because this is the guts of his speech. It's called The Diary of a Bestseller at Just Books. That's the name of his store, Just Books. Ridges of Madison County by Robert Waller, published by Warner Books. February, third week, received usual impassioned publisher pitch to read enclosed book. The letter nearly claimed it was the greatest work since the Bible. 
fell for this one. Great jacket, short book, why not? Bullseye. Every word of impassioned pitch was accurate, called publisher to tell her and to ask for co-op for store, store newsletter, some money in other words. Absolutely yes was the response. Called sales rep and increased order from three to 45. Gave book to colleagues to read, enthusiastic. March, first two weeks, the acid test. Gave book to wife, son, and daughter. Three different tastes, all wild about bridges. Called publisher. Could we get the author for our May Meet the Authors Breakfast Program? A uh, answer affirmative. First three copies arrived, March 20th, that was. March 20th, first, th first three copies sold. March 25th, additional 40 copies arrived. March 27th, 20 sold, reordered 25 more. April, first week, place of honor on staff favorite shelf. April newsletter sent out, phones off the hook, ordered another 50 copies. Now getting reorders from customers who love the book and want to give it as a gift. April, second week, ordered another 100 copies. And the beat goes on. May, first week, ordered 50 more. Uh, December newsletter will feature Bridges of Madison County as the best first novel of 1992, anticipate selling hundreds more. Uh, so that's one bookstores, um, and this is, incidentally, this is a bookstore that's about 10 feet wide and about 30 or 40 feet long, okay? This is not a mega book emporium, and that's, it's people like that that have, that have sold this book. Um, we also cut a radio commercial, which was fun. Uh, I don't know who the woman was, but it was a remarkably sexy voice that just did nice things. I sent a letter to my editor and said, getting divorced, want to marry a woman on tape. But <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't met her yet. <laughs> then Warner Books decided this was for real and got serious. And last uh, two weeks ago, there was a full-page ad in Time magazine for the book. Last week, there was a full-page ad in um, People magazine. And so Warner is, uh, is spending the money now. And it was even on Oprah last week. Oprah! I said, I don't even know what channel Oprah's on. They called me and I said, well, I'll, I'll watch it. And sure enough, the book was featured as one of the five best picks for summer reading on Oprah, which was also fun. And then the letters and phone calls start, and they are wonderful. People track me down. I can't believe it. They call me at 9 o'clock at night from Shreveport, Louisiana say things like, Sugar, is this a true story, or, you know. <laughs> and then, then, I, then I get the letters from women who tell me about their affairs. Uh, uh, true, and phone calls, long letters, and heartfelt about it, and, and really quite moving. Sometimes it's just a tad more than I care to know, but uh, in terms of detail. But anyway, a lot of good stuff. and. Uh, the folklore keeps building on this. My editor says we ought to do a book on this book because it's getting so much fun. There are stores that I've, I've been to. I was to one in, um, in Shreveport, Louisiana. The entire front window was done with memorabilia from the book. Everything from half-smoked camel cigarettes in ashtrays to old radios to guitars to, uh, my god, oh, even a bottle of Windsong perfume for those of you who have read it. Uh, so it, it's getting a folklore all by itself. Uh, it's been reviewed uh, well over 20 times now, which really has surprised me a lot. I didn't think anybody would review this book. Of course, I never think anybody's going to read anything I write. So it, it, it's always amazing to me that they do. And I'm not being falsely modest there. I just uh, didn't think that. I should tell you, incidentally, parenthetical, I never intended to publish this book. I wrote it, and I ran off 10 copies of my printer and sent them to my friends. I said, I had a hell of a time with this. Read the book, and we'll have a party afterwards. And that's as far as it goes. I mean, I had no intention of ever publishing this book. And if you want to know the story, how it got published, you can ask me that uh, later on. Uh, the chains have been very reluctant to pick up the book. I don't know why. Uh, so have the book, or so have the book clubs. But the Book of the Month Club has now purchased it. I have no idea why the chains wouldn't pick this up. Uh, I mean, I went into the. Walden store in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm from Iowa, for God's sakes, you know, and they've got my other books. And it was under local interest in the back. Uh, there were three copies there. Um, it got very frustrating, but my editor told me Monday morning that the big orders are coming in now from the chains. And that's what it takes if you're really going to get it up there and go over the top. It takes the independence to really get it rolling. But, you know, you've got to get uh, the big chains on your side. It's going up in the front racks now of, of B. Dalton, up in those wire racks right at the front, which I'm told is a good thing. Uh, 
That's what people from home tell me. Uh, some, uh, Barney suggested over lunch today that maybe I ought to talk a little bit about technology and how I work. So I want to get off of this other subject and switch gears for a second. Uh, I work with computers. I can't imagine anybody doesn't. Uh, apparently, some people don't. Barnaby Conrad doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I told him he's you know, one of the last of the great neo-Luddites out there. But uh, nonetheless, why, you know, if he wants to do it that way, that's fine. I can't imagine not working without the machines. I carry a laptop computer everywhere I go almost, and, and I have a machine at home. Nothing fancy. I buy cheap ones, buy clones, you know, throw them away after they break down. But, uh, you know, I, I keep four, five, six different books going with major files on all of them. Uh, I just sent my second book to New York. My third one is almost done. I'm 400 pages into a fourth one. I'm 200 pages into a fifth one. I've got six and, numbers six and seven lined out. I have to go to Malaysia to do some research. And then to India to do research on another one. So ideas aren't a problem. It's just keeping track of all of the information and language that I'm, I'm running through. And I couldn't do it without a computer where I'm moving files from place to place and so on. I also carry cameras on the road, and I carry a video camera. I've just started doing that. I stole that idea from Elmore Leonard. Saw an interview with Elmore. I don't like Elmore's books too well, but I like Elmore a lot. And every time I see an interview with him, I think he's just great. And uh, he, I thought, gee, that's got some possibility. So I took a, a, on my last trip to Mexico, I carried a video camera with me. It's got some real advantages, I think. Um, I'm waiting to see how it, it comes out, some of it. but. Uh, I used to sit there and take two hours uh, uh, worth of notes to describe a beach. And with a video camera, I can sweep it in 30 seconds and go home and watch it over and over and over again and get sound and get color and get uh, movement and, and so on. So that seems to, um, to work pretty good. The verdict's still out, though. I've tried a number of artificial intelligence programs. If you don't know what those are, those are programs where you can have a dialogue with the machine. And working as I do in a very reclusive, private kind of way. I, I mean, I have talked to more people today than I would talk to ordinarily in two months, you know, at home. Live out in the woods there. Uh, I use these, I've been experimenting with these, these AI programs where I, I call one up, for example, and it will say, Bonjour, Robert. And uh, it'll say, uh, What are you thinking about? And I'll say, I'm really struggling with a character in the Mexican novel. You know, and it'll say, it'll come back and ask me, it, it's always different, it'll come back and say something like, uh, why is the character in Mexico? Oh, good question, you know. And, or how did he get to Mexico? And, I, and again, the verdict is still out on that kind of technology. I think there's a, I think a tendency you could become formulamatic in using it. But it sure is nice once in a while to have another voice to, to chat with there, even if it is a machine. Uh, so I, I carry on these dialogues, and once, a, once in a while I type in things like, you're full of crap, you know. And it comes back, and it'll say, tell me about crap and Mexico. And, uh, <laughs> but but I'm, in, I'm in control, and at that point I just hit forward and make it jump questions and, and go on. I think that's worth something worth looking at, as long as we don't take it too seriously. But there's some interesting stuff coming along in, in that field for what I call idea generation, okay? Okay, let me switch gears one more time here and finish up with some comments, and then we'll chat a bit if you'd like. Uh, these are just general observations on the writing process. Keep in mind, I'm not a member of the literati. I have no intention of becoming a member of the literati. Um, I have some pretty strong opinions, uh, having been a college professor for years, about what universities do to creativity. So keep those things in mind, as I mentioned in some of these. My first observation is that good art rides on good technique. I've believed this for years. I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning and play scales on my guitar and my flute when I was dean of the College of Business because I wouldn't have time to do it all day, so I played scales. The equivalent in writing of playing your scales is making sure you have all your chops down, that you understand all the basic stuff that you, you know, I mean, paragraph structure and sentence structure and grammar and all of those kind of things that should go without saying, but I sure read a lot of people who really don't have those down. Uh, you just get your chops down, you play the scales. I keep a freshman comp book in my reference library and I look at it and I keep the Chicago Manual style there and I look at it and I pay attention to those kind of things. Uh, that's enough about technique, because you've been talking about technique almost all week. Let's talk about imagination. Where do the ideas come from? I don't know where they come from. 
You just keep yourself wide open and they're always there. I've got more ideas than I can write on in a, in a lifetime uh, right now. What I do find, however, is that people don't flesh these ideas out. They want to be armchair writers. They want to sit and, and just look at their computer or talk to friends in the local coffee house. I'm an on-the-ground kind of researcher. If I'm going to write about Mexico, it's boots and jeans on the airplane to Mexico, rent a car into the back country. Talk as best I can in my pigeon Spanish to the old men leaning against the walls, sleep in cheap joints, eat the Mexican food with the Mexicans, see what it smells like and tastes like and sounds like and feels like. Lie down on the earth, for example, and see what Mexico smells like lying on the ground. I do all of those things. I travel second-class rail in India, and I sweat a lot. Uh, the, as one of the characters in, in this novel I just finished says, the, the, the tourist books tell everybody to travel first-class rail because it's sweaty, and it's hot, and it's packed in, and of course, in second-class. And of course, it's, it's all of those things. But as he also says, the problem with traveling in first-class is you always end up sitting beside some guy some har uh, professor from Harvard who has a cap on that says Ski Vale. And, <laughs> and you spend all your time bitching about the United States political system without, instead of paying attention to India. You get back where the folks ride and sit with them and talk with them and do stuff like that. Sweat a lot. It's important to sweat, I think. I'm big on sweat when it comes to doing research. So I do a lot of library research. There are 30 books stacked up at my, by my chair, which I can't wait to get to. By tomorrow night, I'll be, I'll be there, off the road after all these months. And uh, I'm still working on the Mexican novel, and these are all books on Mexico, ranging from the flora and fauna of Mexico uh, to the history of Mexico, the political system of Mexico. I will have read every single one of those before I'm finished so that I'm always writing with the wind at my back, as I like to call it, along with my personal experiences and hours of videotape down there. Learn, I learn as much as I can of, about a place if I'm going to do it. Uh, that all of this is, my conclusion is that there are no child prodigies in writing. You know, <laughs> you simply have to have experience and go out and do things. Something else that nobody ever thinks of is stamina. You've got to stay in good shape to be a writer. I'll bet you nobody's ever put this in a book anywhere. I think it's really important. I run three and a half miles every other day and do other exercises every day. I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and my coffee is going by 4.01, and I am at the machine by 4.03, and the screen is blinking at me at 4.04, and I'm underway. And I may work 14 hours a day, and I work seven days a week. Every day I'm home, I work seven days a week. It's 12, 14 hours a day. And it's always on ideas and writing and making it better and better and better, getting rid of the crap. That takes a lot of stamina. And if you just sit there like a, you know, a peanut or whatever in that chair, you're going to get stupid and fat and sloppy. I eat a vegetarian diet, you know, and I try to stay thin and mean and tough and run all the time and stay in shape. I, don't, I bet you nobody's ever talked about the physical aspects of being a writer. I've never seen it in a writing book. It's important to have that kind of stamina to, uh, to stay with it. And it also takes mental stamina, concentration, obviously, enormous concentration. My wife said that I can sit on my butt longer uh, than anybody she's ever seen. Uh, for just, and I can. Um, you know, once you get into the ideas, become fascinated with the characters and so forth, it just, she just leaves when I really get rolling. We have that agreement. <clears throat> she can go wherever she wants to go uh, because I'm not paying any attention to her. And uh, if she's not there, then she, she doesn't feel that I'm not paying any attention to her. Uh, but if she's there, then she feels that I'm not paying any attention. Uh, I think my study of mathematics was really good training for being a writer in terms of concentration. I think it was really good because in mathematics, the, some of the stuff I studied was so hard I'd have to go lie on the bed, you know, and just lie there and think about it because it was so exhausting. Uh, I suspect most people who want to be writers steer away from mathematics in, in their training. I don't think you should. I think it leads to real neat things. And one of them is parsimony. Mathematicians all understand elegance. And by elegance, they mean being parsimonious. Uh, don't use anything more than you need to know. Money. <clears throat> Good book to read is uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. All right? And she's talking about money. That's what she's talking about there. To be a good writer, a, a good artist of any kind, you have to have money to sustain you. In uh, the bridges of Madison County, 
my protagonist says he's going to write an essay sometime called The Virtues of Amateurism. And there are a lot of virtues to, be an to being an amateur in the arts because you don't have to give a damn about what the market thinks. If I would have cared about what the market thought, I would have never written The Bridges of Madison County because uh, it just seemed like the odds were all stacked against it. It's, a r it's romantic, it's lyrical, it's too small, it's a little story. It had everything going against it. I didn't care. I just wrote it. I didn't need their money. <coughs> I didn't need anybody's money. I was doing all right, you know. Uh, but if you're going to do it full time, then it starts changing. And you, my, your first temptation, I'm on an unpaid leave of absence now, an extended unpaid leave of absence. I have to fight the temptation every day to worry about the market. Say, just write what you got to say, Jack. That's what I keep telling myself. And uh, it'll take care of itself. But uh, you got, you got to have money. And everybody wants to try and be a professional writer, a professional artist. I think it's much better to earn your living in your, the profession of your second choice and just write exactly what you want. Write and have fun with it, you know. Uh, but anyway, that's my advice, and you can take it for what you, what you want. You will, of course. Uh, I wrote The Bridges of Madison County for fun. You also have to remember that being a writer is a small business. Think of it as running a small business. That's what you're doing. You make capital investments. Should I buy the laser printer or not buy it? The new computer or not the software or not? Should I come to uh, Santa Barbara, California? because that's uh, three days out of my writing time. Is this worth it uh, you know, for me to do that? So you make these small business decisions all the time. And it's, I think it's important to think of yourself as a small business person. When you're producing a product, you're making the same kind of decisions that all small business people do. You write a razor's edge on a word-by-word, sentence-by-sentence basis. Use the wrong word or the wrong phrase too many times, and you're going to get thrown into the category of literary. All right? And it's not going to, it's not going to sell. It's true. It's true. Now, on the other hand, if you try and simplify things too much and just make it garbage, then you're going to be thrown into another category. I don't think there is any contradiction at all between, being do between doing good art and being commercially successful. And anybody that tells you that there is is full of crap, as far as I'm concerned. The English department where I live believes, for reasons I don't understand, that anything that's commercially successful must be bad. And that's because uh, the great sweep of the American public obviously is stupid and have no taste uh, whatsoever. Okay, so if they accept it, it must be a bad book. Well, I don't think they're right. Uh, as I told a friend of mine in the English department the other day, I said, you know, the thing that sustains me through all this nonsense you guys uh, hand out is the vast number of really intelligent people I meet who have read this book and liked it. I said, I don't give a crap what you guys think, so you can do whatever you want to. One of the English professors at home, incidentally, who was a friend of mine, read, read this book early on. He begged to read it, and I turned him down. He heard I was writing a novel, and I said, I don't want you to read this book. Uh, my characters aren't ready for the kind of nonsense you're going to lay on them. And, and uh, I said, I love these people too much. And so he finally, he, he did read the book, and he wrote, that I, can st I kept his letter, and God, I'm glad I did, because it's a great line for a novel somewhere. He said at the end of it, he said, well, <coughs> I could hear him going <coughs> in the letter. You know? uh, he said, Robert, now that you have this one out of your system, you can put it aside and write your first real novel. Mm. Mm. True. That's absolutely true. Let me go on to another subject, and that's the notion of courage. I don't think people talk about courage in writing books or writing seminars very much. When I never thought too much about it, but when I published my first book of essays, a man wrote me a very nice letter about it. Uh, he says he, he had read Just Beyond the Firelight, and he said, I commend you for an act of courage. And I don't know what he's talking about. So I ran into him a while later, and he was talking about my willingness to completely expose myself, my soul, how I feel about things, how I feel about making love and marriage and my father and all of these kinds of things. Uh, I always tell people when they say, how can I become a writer? First thing I tell them is, don't read grammar books, lose your fear. Once you lose your fear, you can always pick up the technique. But I, I read so much stuff that's guarded, and you can't be very guarded. You have to say anything that, that comes to mind and take the consequences for it. You'll see that all over in the Bridges of Madison County. If you haven't read that book yet, you'll see it. It has a lot of disclosure in that book. Uh, <clears throat> you know, so, as my wife <coughs> pointed out to me. <coughs> there are other strange kinds of things that you really can't help. Uh, some of them, for males, have to do with their relationship uh, between themselves and their fathers. 
And I'm not sure I, I could have, this is, it will sound harsh, but it's not meant to because I love my father. He was a good, solid, Midwestern, blue-collar man. But I'm not sure I could have written this book if he were still alive. I'm not sure I could have. Uh, and a lot of men feel that way. They won't tell you that, but it's true if you talk to them. Um, uh, again, I don't mean that to sound harsh. I wish he were here to share all of the fun. He would be having more fun than any of you if he were here. But nonetheless, it would have been hard to write the book and have him look at it. He would have just not been comfortable with, it, with the whole idea. Let's talk about passion for a minute. I think if you're going to err, err on the side of passion, err on the side of blood and guts and sex and love and all of that kind of stuff. Again, the English guys will tell you not to do that, that you should be terribly spare and bloodless and so on. I think they're full of it. Um, you know, a good editor will tell you when you've gone over the line in those areas. I don't worry about that. I, and I do error uh, sometimes. I err on the side of sloppy sentimentality, and I am unapologetic for it, absolutely unapologetic. The world has lost its capacity, I think, for real feelings. And I think that's what people find in the bridges of Madison County. And it's not sloppy sentimentality, the, the bridges isn't. I simply said a lot of things I had to say in that book, and I'm unapologetic for it. And if people think it's, uh, it's mawkish, then that's their problem. That's not my problem. And I think you have to stop worrying about that. There are all these people out there who can't write lyrically, who can't write romantically, and they're devising all those rules that tell other people they shouldn't write that way either, see? So you have to be careful uh, about that stuff, all right? Remember, I'm an old academic. I've got battle scars all over the place, so I don't even care what anybody thinks anymore. See, that's a nice place to be, you know. Uh, there's a certain veneer of, civil veneer of civilization and sophistication they'll try and get you to assume. And in doing that, you'll probably lose a lot of what's in your guts, you know. Air on the side of passion is, is I guess, is the last thing I have to say on that. Um, beauty. How do we think about beauty? I think Eudora Welty got it right. Uh, I used a different term. I used to give a, a guy gave me this quote. I used to uh, talk about slanting ways all the time. Uh, I have a little um, a speech I give called The Search for a Personal Vision. And in that, I, I talk about you can't get at big truth directly. You come at it indirectly. And fiction writing is a good way to do that. And he sent, a friend of mine sent me a, a quote from Eudora Welty. I'll paraphrase it. She said, I don't think we should try for beauty. I think we should try to do the best we can and hope that beauty comes along. And I think that's pretty, pretty good advice. Last thing I have to say is trust in magic. There are all kinds of magical things about writing that have nothing to do with computers. They have to do with driving your truck through a hot summer afternoon in Iowa, stopping at a park, getting out, walking around your truck, shuffling your feet in the dust and saying, by God, there's something there and I don't know what it is. But as soon as I get home, I'm going to start working on it. You know? That's all I have. I'm not a literati. I'm not trained in literature. I don't know any formal stuff at all. I'm not very well read in literature. I am in mathematics and economics. I used to take a winter uh, over the years and read, try and read an author, Hemingway one year, and uh, Kipling. Nobody reads Kipling, but I read Kipling and thoroughly enjoyed it uh, one winter. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not very profound when it comes to uh, a highly literate uh, kind of discourse, but I'd sure be happy to talk with you if you'd like. Do you have any questions? Yes, yes ma'am. Okay, I'm supposed to share with you how I got the book published. Uh, I was in the bathroom crying. That's where the story starts, and it's a this is true. I was about ready to write a scene in the book, and I was so overcome with the beauty of the thing that these two people had for one another that I, I started crying, and I went in the bathroom, and I couldn't stop crying, and I sat in the bathroom and kept crying. And the guy who had edited my essay books called about one of those books, and he said, I need to talk to Robert. My wife said, he's in the bathroom crying. <laughs> and he said, What's he, what on earth is he crying about? And she told him, and he says, well, tell him to send it to me. So I did. And, and he called me up and he said, what are you going to do with this? And it's just what I said before. I'm going to run 10 copies and we're going to have a party. Oh, come on. And I said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. He said, what if I would find an agent for you? I didn't have an agent. And I said, well, it's okay with me. You want to find an agent? We'll see what happens. So 
he located an agent in New York that was willing to read the book. Uh, but I had some track record, remember? I had three books out. I'd published 40 academic articles and 40 popular articles. So it wasn't the first thing I'd ever written. <coughs> they were kind enough to read it and bought it two days later, said they wanted to represent me two days later, and sold the book six days later. And, and the, the film option sold three weeks later. And it's too easy. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, that's... <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's been kind of a. We have a question over here, Bill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, Bill. Well, I can tell you that the the first offer for the third book is in six figures. No, uh, and that's been turned down by my agent. Uh, she is tough, you know. <laughs> Um, I don't know how much I, I want to say. It's, uh, it's not enough to live on yet. It's pretty big money. But I've always done well, because I, I consulted as well as being a, a professor. You know, um, the cash flow is extremely tight right now. But it should get better uh, before too long. Now, we'll do six figures on this first book easy. Uh, the way it's the way it's going with foreign rights and everything, and I expect the second book will will do as well. No, I'm I, I'm going to use the money to after I drive my pickup truck through it and cause all the damage. I'm going to that'll be for my attorney to defend me. You know. Oh yes, we are. If we're don't kid yourself. I'm really glad when those checks come. Yes, ma'am. That's you. Okay. Oh, yes. Was much editing done on the book, or did they pretty much leave it as you wrote it? Question. Was much editing done on the book? They changed one word. <laughs> one word. I made an error uh, in the book. I, I said the Home Office of National Geographic was in New York, and it was in Washington, D.C., and they changed that. And I told them, well, I had a no number of changes I wanted to make. I'm home fussing. And my editor said, for God's sakes, you're going to tinker it to death. You know, she said, don't do anything. So I made a few little changes. Yes? Uh, depends which one you mean by second. I've got a, several that they're, my agent and editor are fighting about. Have you read the first one? Okay. The second one, you might think of it as a bookend to the first one. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's about a rebellious college professor. It, uh, <laughs> it, the first line of it starts off like this. Uh, it was, this is close, uh, uh, it was like some old song on late night radio. Jelly was the wife of one of my colleagues and I wanted her. Wanted her, wanted her enough to travel, to, wanted her more than my next breath. Wanted her enough to travel the world looking for her, which I eventually did. A good part of it takes place in India. Uh, the third book is a story of a professional assassin, an, a greedy author, <laughs> and a young Mexican woman. Uh, it's a story, the third one is the story, it's a human, the humanizing influence that women can have on arrogant, cold men. And it's, it's a charming little book. It's, um, I'm a hundred and 60 pages into that. I'm almost done with that one. After this, by September, I'll be, be done. Mm -hmm. Then I want to write, I want to finish the big sweeping novel of the China Sea schooner captain that all men want to write, you know. <laughs> yes. You mean what time should I work? No, oh. oh, okay. You, question is the question deals with uh, some of the inter-family relationships of writing this hard. You mean and working this hard to to get my best settled. That's the word I use. Settled. I have to be completely calm, completely quiet. Uh, it's an inner. Do you know anything about pottery? 
You ever watched it when a potter brings a pot on center? You know, it's, <coughs> it's going floppity, floppity, flop, and all at once it goes, you know, perfect. That's what I try for. Uh, getting a good night's sleep, eating the right foods. Food has a lot to do with it. Food has a lot to do with how your stomach feels and how your body is responding. If your body's working very hard to digest, say, lots of animal fats, uh, then it's taking away some things from your head, you know? Uh, some, uh, and also it has to do with living in as long as I have and th thinking as long as I have, you know? My wife tells me she's, I'm, uh, that I infuriate her because I'm always so level, almost. And it just takes a long time to get there. I've come through a lot of, I don't want to get into them, but a lot of hard times in emotional times. And that has a way of tempering you. Part of it's just getting older, and you just, like I said, you say, what the hell, you know, what are, what are they going to do with you? You're going to die before too long, you know, so <laughs> say what you've got to say. Uh, I, you know, you're asking me a question out of psychotherapy, and I'm no expert on, on that, uh, but exercise is very important for me uh, to s remain settled. That's as good as I can do, I guess. Yes. No, I work at home. I, wor I work at home. <coughs> well, of course, phone calls affect my productivity. Uh, nobody drops in. They know better than that. Um, I'm not a very friendly person about those kind of things. You know, call first. Uh, they, they know my work habits, my friends do, and, and I know theirs. I wouldn't intrude on theirs. But you see, I start so early at 4 in the morning, by 10 or 11 when the phone calls start, I've, I've got a full work day out of the way. Then I nap, or then I eat lunch, light lunch, then I nap, then I jog three and a half miles, then I come home and do some more exercise and shower, and I begin again about 2.30 or 3, and I have another four or five hour shot there when it's like a brand new day. And I'm rested and settled, and, and I've eaten, and uh, so forth. I mean, you, you just pay these guys. Uh, th th some people would say that's an enormous price. It's no price at all. This is fun. This is fun. How uh, Benjamin Cheever at this, uh, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned his name, but at this, uh, it was at this conference in the East, and John Cheever's son, he's just written his first novel, and he was telling about the agonizing process of producing his first novel, and he went on and on and on about giving birth, you know, and all this, and, and got all done. And, and then somebody from the audience said, well, Robert, what do you think? And I said, I think Benjamin has never worked on road construction. And I, I, think, I, th I think writers complain too damn much. I mean, this is not that hard of work. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I'm sitting in a nice air-conditioned loft that overlooks the woodland. I've got hot coffee. I've got the cat on my lap. I've got my cigarettes over here. I've got a little tango music if I want to play it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I go out to get groceries, and there's guys pouring oil on the roads out there. They're working real hard. I mean, you've you got to get some perspective about this. You know, people pay me for doing this. I say this is, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are you considering publishing your photographs at any time? Yeah, the question is, am I considering publishing my photographs? The answer is an absolute yes. That's a hard kind of book to publish because they're expensive and they don't sell very well. What we will do is write it on the back of the novels. Okay? We will. I knew that already. I had that figured out. I went to New York and told them that, and they said, absolutely, you're right. We'll, we'll tack it. Once you get a couple of books out that have sold well, people will buy the photographic book because they have bought your novels. And I also have some twists that I'm going to use. I'm going to do some writing in it, so it won't just be photographs, but I'll tie the photographs together with themes. Robert? Yes? You're such a health nut, and you're so disciplined. What am I going to tell my daughter when I keep telling her that she's got to give up smoking? No, I smoke. You don't tell her anything. No. Robert Waller smoked. No, I'm, that's, I'm not, I'm unapologetic about that, you know, hell. No, that's, that's, that's something I don't even talk about. That's just something I do, you know, <laughs> you know. I mean, what, what the hell, uh, you know, a little, oh, Christ, the hypocrisy is a really normal human condition, you know. Let's, <laughs> listen, let's not get, let's not get too carried away with health. Yeah. yeah. Do I have spiritual interests or beliefs? No. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I, I have profound ones. Uh, I had a, a guy, who a Jesuit priest once, tell me I was the most religious man he ever knew, but he couldn't figure out why. Um, uh, you know, do I, do I attend church? Do I do all those kind of things? No, the answer is I don't do any of that. I don't scoff at those who do. I, I think people should do what works for, for them as long as they don't try and force me into doing it. Do I believe some high power, higher power exists? I know enough about mathematics and science to say something's out there. It all fits too well, you know. Uh, but it's, um, I call it cosmic ecology. That's my term for it, uh, rather than using God or something uh, like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a scoffer. Don't get me wrong, you know. It's, it's just my own way of, you know, I'm not a very introspective person in certain ways. Uh, my wife is, is a very introspective person. She thinks an awful lot about all the big existential questions. I tend to learn those things through my writing rather than sitting and thinking about them. It's, somebody said writing is a process of self-discovery and that's one of the reasons it's so much fun. I say, I didn't know that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes? No, my agent, the question is where's my agent? She's in New York. Uh-huh, we talk about, uh, she, she's quite wonderful, really. She calls me a couple of times a week if she doesn't hear from me. So, uh, she's into nurturing and, and caring and nurturing of the author, and I don't really need it very much, as she's discovered, but it's, uh, it's nice to have her call. And sometimes she just calls late on a Thursday night in the winter when it's cold, and she's sitting on the 39th floor of, of a building in New York, and she wants to talk with another human voice, and we just chat for an hour about where to go on vacation or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's a good relationship. I like her a lot. I like my editor a lot, too. People c complain about their publishers and so on. There's too much ego in this business. I mean, and, and, and it's just going, this guy, you know, I mean, these are human beings that are, you know, they have their agenda. I have mine. I know what their agendas are. They want to make money. I want to make money and do art. And we're going to bring them all together eventually. We're just... Will you write a bad book? Pardon me? Will you write a bad book and see how wonderful they are? Oh, I have no illusions about that. I'm as good as my last book, uh, you know. They are genuinely nice people, but in terms of writing checks out, I'm only as good as. Yeah, I'm I'm only as good as my last book in terms of when it comes to writing checks. But I have, I'm under no illusions that I'm I'm loved for my figure or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll answer how many you want. He, I don't care. I'm, I'll work all night. Doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Right. What? Oh, I will not give my agent's name out. I'm not allowed to do that. Uh, that's true. She won't let me do it. Okay. Basketball. I did write a brilliant piece on basketball. Was it the one called Jump Shots? Yes. I wrote a piece on jump shots about my disaffection with big-time athletics. Where did it appear? Well, it appeared in the Des Moines Register. That's yeah. where I, you know, people always ask about how do I get started in writing. They all want to publish a novel or something right off the bat. I think you ought to write for your newspaper. That's a good way to learn. You have to write tight to get stuff in a newspaper. Yes, it's a very good newspaper. There's their Sunday, I mean, if you want exposure, their Sunday edition is read by a million people. Yeah, I wrote about my river trip. Where are you from? Uh, yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah. Yeah, they, the Register published an eight-part series that I wrote. Gave me the, they gave me the entire editorial page every day for eight days. I was really amazed. And it was called Going Soft Upon the Land and Down Along the Rivers, a lyrical essay about Iowa and its problems and so on. Very good. Jump shots. Nice piece. Yes. <laughs> Uh oh. Oh, thank you. Hmm. Good question. Did, did you hear what she said? How much effect on my writing uh, came from being raised in Iowa? Quite a lot. I haven't thought about it that much. I've been asked to a couple of times. Iowa is spare. Uh, it's powerful. Uh, we get 
weather changes that go from 106, for example, on a July day to 93 degrees below zero chill factor the following winter. It's hard country in terms of, of weather, okay? It's very plain country. The people are quite plain. Um, they're not very fancy, flashy. But most of all, it's the silence. It's quiet out there. You can drive on a paved road in Iowa for a half hour and not see another car. I spent seven days on the river and saw two other people. Uh, so it's, so one of the reviewers of, of the bridges of Madison County picked up something I hadn't thought about and she said, one of the major themes of this book is quiet. It's quiet. And uh, she was right. The love affair is quiet in a certain way. Uh, the weather is quiet. You know. So yeah, it's had some, uh, had some effect on me. What There's were you doing on the river? What was I doing on the river for eight days? At the turn of my 47th year, I decided to canoe the river of my growing years and see how I felt about it. Uh, I went back to that river. I credit much of what I know about life to that river. Um, in one of my essays, I once said, at five or six years of age, I understood that the minnows ate the algae, the bass ate the minnows, I ate the bass, and that someday the universe would eat me. And I understood that at five or six or seven years of age. And for me, that's, a, that's been a very important thing to know. You know, get you, get you humble, get you place in the great spinning mass of things out there. Yes? Did you spend some time in India? Yes, been to India three times, love it. Yeah, I'm going to write a book about some guys in India, you know. Uh, India's too big to get into one book, but too complex. But I'm going to write a book about some Americans that had a peculiar experience in, in India. It's a good story. It's going to take a lot of research. And that's why I've got it sitting out there a little ways. And it means some dangerous travel into a country where you, at the moment you're barred from going. But I'm going to get a pass and get in there somehow. Yeah, it's great. It's a fascinating country. Mm-hmm. Yes? Never happens. Never happens. I don't believe in writer's block, if that's what you're asking. Never. Never. That doesn't happen. I can get hung up in plot and structure, okay? But not in terms of the next sentence or making the language happen. I've been fooling with language for so long, and that's an important part of it. I read the dictionary. I wrote a lot of songs over the years that I was a musician. I've walked around with the words in my head all these years. Um, I would never, I mean, it may take two minutes. I don't uh, It's never frustrating, though. It's fun. Uh, you know, I like that, diddling with the language, seeing where it goes, seeing what happens. Take the sentence, write it 18 times, and twist it inside out. And later on, you'll throw it out anyway, probably, before you don't. Now, I, I don't like that term, writer's block. That's as if some outside force has a hold of your mind. I call it conceptual problems. And we're just, you, you gotta solve the problem, is the way I think of it. Something to get around. John McPhee, you know, has this wonderful thing where he ties himself to his chair with a piece of rope so they won't go out and look, at, look to see if the mail is there every five minutes. <laughs> it's a great, it's really wonderful. Yes. How do I relate to what? Bellingham, Washington? Never been there. Just seemed like a nice place to use. Did a lot of travel up around the Seattle and Olympic, Olympic uh, Peninsula areas a couple years ago. Every so often, I just get on an airplane and fly somewhere I've never been before by myself and spend two weeks. And I just wander around uh, with my cameras, notebooks, just see what's out there. <coughs> never been to Bellingham, no. Just seemed like you ought to be from Bellingham. That's, that, that's called the magic, yes. Oh, sure. The question is, do you, have I sacrificed in my life? Yeah, I have. Um, I spent more hours in serious study and, stu and thinking and how to 
think about how to thinking in economics and mathematics in nine and a half years in college, uh, an incredibly rigorous PhD program that almost broke me at one time. Uh, yeah, let's see that, as I keep telling people, once you've done serious mathematics, you know, other things don't seem as hard to you. Uh, they just don't. Uh, you know, you do highly theoretical, abstract mathematics, and it just gets your mind to a certain place that a lot of other things seem fun. So yeah, I've made sacrifices. And, and some personal ones that I wouldn't care to get into in a forum such as this that were incredibly emotional and draining, you know, illness in the family, serious illnesses that went on for years and things like that. I was a university dean for seven years. That was a sacrifice. I, I just took it because a bunch of people asked me to. Took time out of my life. It was awful. Um, not as many sacrifices as some people have made, I'm, I'm sure. You know, my wife says I've walked the fires, so she's been with me 31 years, so she knows a fair amount about it. She may be only about six months away from going if we keep this right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I failed math. You failed math? Mm -hmm. Sit on your butt. The question is, what's the good mental discipline? For, you mean for math? Oh, you mean aside from mathematics? Economics. How about economics? No, there's a lot of discipline in economics. It's hard. It's, it's mathematical, only it's in qualitative terms quite often. I mean, the thinking is the, is the same way. I, that's very good discipline. Mm -hmm. I think. I taught economics for years. Yes? How does the first novel change your self-image? Well, I don't think it's changed it at all, except, except it did for about two months. When the novel, when I had the novel accepted and, and the movie rights were sold and everything, I said, hey, I'm a big deal. I said, I'm a writer, you know? If I'm a writer, I ought to be a literary guy, right? So I went out and got a bunch of books on literary theory and read all these books and, and I sat down to write my second novel and I thought it was just wonderful. It was just literary as hell and it was just trash is what it was. And I had to throw the whole thing away and just say, let's start over and go back to drinking beer and doing, doing the Texas two-step on Wednesday nights. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I was just, I got, I got full of myself for a couple of months. But I got by that, I think. <laughs> that's as honest as I can be. Yes. Oh, my God. Who would I like to see play the role in the movie? That's, I, we're, I'm not going to be quoted on this, am I? Like, is there anybody out here? Well, it doesn't have to be a secret. I, I can just tell you who I was thinking of, okay? That's the best way to put it. I saw um, the Francesca character as one of two people, either Barbara Hershey or um, Mary McDonald, who played opposite Costner in Dances with Wolves. And she's got the great lines, you know. This is a woman with some age on her. I mean, she, she's got to show it a little bit. In terms of the male characters, I... Uh, there's only one person in the world can play it, but they haven't called. So aside, <laughs> aside, from, that, um, aside from that, Sam Shepard would do a nice job. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you somebody else who would, too, is Terrence Stamp, British actor, Terrence Stamp. My wife's in love with Terrence Stamp. I mean, we have a photograph of him at home, and she, she says if he calls, she'll go. I mean, <laughs> she's very, very matter-of-fact about it, and, I, and serious enough, I, I think I believe her now. But. Cast Woody Allen. <laughs> the, well, that's a good question there. It, it, Barnaby's talking about this in a joking kind of way. What am I going to do if they, you know, cast Woody Allen and Madonna in it? Yeah. You know, I saw an, I saw a, a, an interview with um, with uh, Tom Clancy and uh, Stephen King and some others talking about. They were whining, is what they were doing, about uh, the movies didn't come out the way they thought they should. Okay. Well, I thought, you know, what the hell? These guys are making zillions of dollars. They signed the contract. My contract is the same as theirs. It's a standard contract. They doesn't say you won't have anything to say about it. Now, I made a decision ahead of time, did I not? I mean, this, are we not adults? Are we not grown up? Can we not read? The contract says take the money and sign or don't take the money. I took the money, right? <laughs> Just like they did. The movie doesn't come out the way I want it. I'm going to say, "What a pile of crap that is," you know. And I'm going to go home and tell people to read the book and not go see the movie. But <laughs> yeah, I'm, 
I'm gonna drive. I'm gonna drive my Mercedes Benz home instead of my truck. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not very sympathetic with people who whine about things like that. Uh, I mean, they, they, you, I can read. They can read. The contract says this and thus. We have no control over it. That I don't know of any author that's ever had control over their their book. It's called Growing Up. That's what it's called. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. How do I develop a novel? Um, I don't want to sound glib about this. I sit down and type in the first sentence. Is what I do. Uh, sometimes just the title. I started my one of my books with just a title. I had no idea what it was going to be about. So I'm 400 pages into it. I don't like outlines. Outlines. There's a serious problem with outlines, and I'll, I'll tell you what they are. It's, it's a mathematical concept, but I'll just say it in general terms. Outlines are linear. Okay, and good writing has a lot of circularity movement in it, just like thinking does. Uh, an outline will take you in one direction always, and sometimes you want to come back and do this. So you, have, you have to be careful. Of, I, I'm not saying they don't work for some people. You ask me how I work, right? Okay, I'm not saying they're generally bad. I'm just saying why I, why I don't use them. Uh, now, the, the, the book on Mexico, my wife and I hammered out over beer in the Las Palomas bar in Puerto Vallarta over two nights. And I actually did, we didn't do an outline, we did a treatment, you know, sketch a scenario. So this is kind of the way it'll go along, we, I think, you know. It changed some as I did it, but sure, I did it on that one. Some I don't do any on. Depends what I feel like. It, I'm, I'm unpredictable that way. You know, it's like shooting pool when you're hot, you're hot, you know. And, and other times you have to get analytical about it and hammer some things out. So it shifts for me from time to time. Now comes the real work. Okay, thank you. That's super. Wasn't that great? Thank you so much, Robert.